For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again from Sydney lockdown. I feel like it's the 10th week that we've been doing this now. It's a lot. I'm losing track of time. Anyway, at least I have this podcast to stop me going insane. My guest today has a brand new book out this week. It's called Status Game on Social Position and How We Use It. And it's all about what he calls the hidden structure behind human behavior, which is status, and how it drives us and gets us to fit in and stand out and misbehave and behave in groups. He is the English writer Will Storr. And I chased him down after getting an older book of his out of the library. When we recorded this interview, which was a few months ago, I was reading this book called Selfie. It's subtitled How We Became So Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. And on the back of all the stuff that was happening in the US with Trump, narcissism and anyway, social media, mental health, I just found this book absolutely riveting. And do you ever get that thing where, particularly with nonfiction, you feel like the author is in your head and you want to have a conversation with them and you want to ask questions? Sometimes, actually quite often, I email these authors and tell them and see if they would come on the podcast. And sometimes they say yes. Case in point. So I'm very happy to bring this interview with Will. Even though he doesn't write about fashion, there's obvious links between fashion and status. I don't agree with everything Will comes up with. Well, there's no denying that the drive for status is still huge in our society and through various histories. I'm not convinced that it lies beneath everything. Just because we're wired in a certain way, I mean, does that have to determine the outcome? Yes, there are scientific studies that show how social status is hardwired into our brains, but we're all different and we're evolving. To me, this obsession with hierarchies feels increasingly old-fashioned. I believe we're moving, albeit slowly, towards a new normal where cooperation and equality and sustainability and a level playing field is what more of us really want. And so it's not good enough to be like, well, human nature made me do it. For me, the missing question here is, if we are wired this way, then how can we rewire? And also, what about the role that environment plays? And I think women are different, (laughs) better, and that there's probably too much of a focus on how men operate in selfie. But that's to be expected because the author is a man. Okay, fine. He's also a Gen X white man. And I think younger generations have a different perspective. What about people of colour? What happens when you look at all of this through different lenses? Like I said, it's very intriguing. There's so much to think about. Now, Will's the author of another book. It's also a TED Talk and creative writing class that he calls The Science of Storytelling. So there's lots in this. We talk about everything from ancient Greece to Time magazine covers to Instagram and narcissism and perfectionism and mental health. Will Storr is a very interesting bloke. Buy his new book, buy his old books, we'll share links. If you want to see his dogs on Instagram, by the way, he's at William Storr. And get in touch with me while you're on there. I'm shamelessly sharing selfies, as usual, at Mrs. Press. All right, let's hear from author of the moment, Will Store. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Will Store. I'm so happy that we got there. We had some technical difficulties. Always fun. Always fun, Claire. Yeah, we got over them, though. I have been reading your book 
recently over the holidays. It's your 2017 book, Selfie, How We Became So Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. Mm -hmm. But it's absolutely riveting. And I would say that it's just as, if not more relevant today. I mean, I sent you these questions in advance and I was like, it's not like social media, self-esteem, mental health or narcissism are out of the headlines no, not at all. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. It feels like it could have been yeah published uh, last week. Yeah, that's definitely true. Before we go there, do you want to plug your latest book, Will? It's out on September the second, and it's published by HarperCollins. Yeah, I suppose I could. I mean, I have a new book coming out, which, which is about status and about the importance of status. People want to feel like it's only about connection and it's not about status. But the argument is that actually status is is a basic human need. And one of the major ways we get status as, as humans is through virtue. And that might sound cynical, oh, we only, we only do virtuous things to get status. But the fact that we earn status by being kind to other people is an incredible thing. It's a really, it's a, it's a reason to be optimistic uh, about our species. It's a, it's a reason to think that, that we do have kind of better futures in store. I did stalk you on Instagram because we are talking about selfie <laughs> culture. And I note that you do have Instagram. You mostly post pictures of your dogs, Parker and Mr. <laughs> Jones. Is that to boost your engagement? No, I don't really use Instagram for work purposes, <laughs> as, as you've noticed. No, I, I kind of use Twitter for work stuff. And even Twitter, I just only look at that on the browser now. And I don't actually look at the column of tweets. I just use it to reply to people who are getting in contact with me. So so I, I'm just trying to sort of distance myself from all of that stuff. And yeah, Instagram, I don't lock it away or anything because I just feel like my pictures of dogs are so boring. It acts as an automatic <laughs> distancer to people who, uh, who don't really know me. But I did, I did notice that selfies were conspicuously absent and obviously the title of your book being selfie although it's not actually specifically about the kind of craze of taking selfies but you're not really one to take pictures of yourself and spread them all over the internet right is that because you're an old man <laughs> sorry <laughs> um, i don't mean it like that but relatively <laughs> well it kind of yeah i suppose it is yeah i mean I, I you know apart from the pictures of dogs you know one of the things i do do i, I don't do it because of lockdown i've not been away so much but you know i you know, I enjoy photography and I, and I post sort of pictures that I like on, on Instagram. You know, so the disingenuous thing would be for me to sit here and go, oh, yes, well, of course I don't post selfies. But, you know, posting your best picture on Instagram is just another way of getting attention from people and getting validation. So that's my old man version of, uh, of selfie, really, is to, is to post a, you know, a picture of this is my new book. Look at this review I've got. So it's exactly the same thing. It's just that I'm not going to get that much validation from my face. <laughs> I asked you that though while teasing you for a serious reason because the topics of selfies on social media obviously play differently for millennials and Gen Z and I think also play differently for the fashion world and the fashion industry that I come from. It's not a strong focus in your book but it is very relevant and since this is a fashion podcast I wondered how much you look at those worlds. Yeah I mean of course, I mean not not fashion so much, but yeah, certainly, obviously, youth and social media are, are, is is a huge part of selfie. Um, I think one of the things I wanted to do in that book was to work out, you know, what was going on, especially with young people and mental health, because yeah. it's good because the, there was a narrative out there at the time, and it's still out there, really, that this is like the snowflake generation, and they're also sensitive. I, I suspect there's more to it than that, and I think there is, and, and and that's why a big part of the book is this this idea of actually it's the economy is the big driving factor here. Uh, since the 80s, we've been, you know, we in the West have been living in this neoliberal economy, which is this kind of rampantly super competitive version of capitalism you know which was 
you know, Thatcher and Reagan's great project in the um, 80s. And it's changed who we are. It's changed to, you know, I'm Gen X. It's, it's changed to our generation. Was our generation became obsessed with this idea of self-esteem above all. Uh, and then we raised millennial and Gen Z children um, uh, who kind of embodied those values. And so actually, I think, you know, a lot of the reason why there is a, a, an increase in these mental health issues is to do with actually life is really tough, um, especially for young people. One of the kind of connecting factors that kind of leads to all sorts of um, mental health um, issues, whether it's eating disorder, self-harm, depression, suicidal ideation, is perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And when psychologists talk about perfectionists, they talk about people who are overly sensitive to signals of failure in their environment. And I think you know, that's what we've seen, especially since the 80s, is that our, our environment, the kind of world in which we exist, is full of you know, it's full of symbols of success, other people's success. But if we're not matching up to them, those symbols of other people's success feel like symbols of failure because we think, well, well, how come I ain't got that car? How come I ain't got that job and that podcast or, or whatever it is? And of course, social media really ramps that up. I mean, especially if you work in the creative industries, social media is full of um, your colleagues' success. And that feels like failure. I, when I have a book out, I, as an author, you're kind of obliged to kind of tweet all the news, tweet all the positive reviews. Mm -hmm. But I'm also really well aware that when I'm feeling a bit down about my career, other authors' reviews and good news, it's, oh God, it's just the last thing you want to see. You do raise a very important point, which is that we live in this age in which we're pressured to craft this perfect image online and Outside of our real life, I guess, I think COVID has been exacerbating this trend towards living, obviously, online and through screens, but then also pushing us to try to show that we're all fine and we're all doing marvellously. And yeah. I don't know, like there's something that I think everybody listening will relate to this, both the envy of watching other people seemingly have a better, more perfect time, but yeah. also feeling this pressure to try and make ourselves look that we're that way. I don't know. Yeah, I think so. And, 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 I, and I think part of the problem that to sort of runs underneath that is that people really misunderstand. Yeah, they misunderstand how the brain works and how psychology works. And, you know, one of the things that I've been sort of thinking about recently is this idea of, you know, especially since Self was published, it's much more about wellness now and people talking about wellness. And there's this kind of trope out there that you should, should never compare yourself to other people. You should only ever compare yourself to who you were yesterday. And it's a lovely idea and it's very smart, but it's completely impossible because... Not um, how we're wired. No, it's not how we're wired. The, the, the brain only can only tell how we're doing in, in life by comparing itself to other people. I mean, you know, that, that, that's everything. It's that feeling of when you get into a swimming pool and it feels freezing and then it warms up. It's because your brain's understanding and experience of that temperature is all about comparison. So the water is freezing compared to the, the air outside, but after about a minute, it becomes warm again. And that's how the brain works. The brain, is a, it, it compares us and our states constantly to other people. So it's much harder than you think. You know, you can't simply choose to stop comparing mm -hmm. yourself to other people because that's mm -hmm. an automatic function of the brain. You raise so many interesting stories, theories, arguments around how the brain functions, but how we view it in society and through psychology. We're going to get into that. But I've got a question I wanted to ask up front, which is this. Are we all rampant narcissists now? And I'm not being tongue-in-cheek about this because I refer you to two Time magazine's covers. You mentioned one from 2006, where the star was you. <laughs> and I'd, I'd written about one from 2013, where the star was me, me, me. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting worse. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the answer to that is yes, but not in the way that that is, is often thought that we just spoil 
idiots. You know, there's there's, there's always this moral moral judginess that goes along with the, with these arguments, which which I always think are kind of good to sort of dig past. And, and so the answer really goes back, you know, more than two thousand years since ancient Greece and the beginning of what, what we call you know Western individualism. And so you know, humans are a tribal, we're a tribal animal. And so we're very, very groupish. We're a, a species of great ape that has kind of worked out how to conquer the world by cooperation, by working together, division of labor, communication, all that stuff. So we are naturally very, very, very tribal. So this kind of Western individualism is kind of a weird remix of that tribalism because it's self-focused. And so, you know, we're naturally, we have this propensity to experience ourselves in terms of the group and most people around the world still do that but in the west um starting in ancient greece uh, we started to experience ourselves much more in terms of the of the individual what really ran that up was neoliberalism in the 80s what is the definition of narcissism I suppose you've got to separate out the, the clinical definition of narcissistic personality disorder and just, the, you know, the, the, that kind of the word narcissism that we use more kind of casually. And I guess that's the way I'm using it. Narcissism really is about entitlement and thinking I am special. I'm a special person and I deserve to be treated as a special person. So um, when psychologists are finding increases in narcissism since the 90s, that's what they're finding. They're finding that there's this increase in in somebody believing that they're special. And it makes perfect sense because the whole self-esteem movement for the 80s was telling parents, raise your children by telling them they're special, telling them they can do anything. All those kind of neoliberal myths that we tell each other we can do, you can do anything you just got to set your mind to it just believe and and the rewards will come all this stuff that isn't really true we know it's not really true of course it's going to make people more narcissistic because if you're a child and everybody around you is telling you that you're special and amazing and you can do anything of course you're going to believe that so it, i was interested in what your personal opinion was as to whether or not we are actually becoming as a society more narcissistic because I feel like it's something that the media loves to charge at young people Mm. and the older generations love to say that younger generations are more, insert here, terrible, whatever, narcissistic, (laughs) self-absorbed, lazy, feckless, all the rest. But in my work, I deal with loads of students and I always meet really community-minded activist change makers who are completely the opposite of that and they want to get together and work to do good collectively. What, yes. what do you think? Well, you've got to kind of separate out the kind of the, the, the kind of broad trends. And I, I think the broad trends, you know, people are becoming well, we are more narcissistic now than we were in the 70s. But, but, okay. but I, I think my, the last time I looked, the data was saying that, that those rises in narcissism had leveled out a few years ago and, oh. and, and started to flatline. So I think that I agree with that. My take on what's happened is it, is it sort of begins with the global financial crisis in 2008, really. I, I think since around that time, we've seen life has got significantly worse for uh, young people, especially. So you know, student debt, they're hard to get on the property ladder. There's a significant and growing issue with graduate underemployment. And I, I think it's, it's quite well known that the millennials were the first generation in a long time that, that were going to earn less than their parents. So suddenly in around 2008, life starts getting worse. The real world outside of social media for young people is it's really getting harder and they're, mm-hmm. they're seeing their status slip and, and, mm-hmm. and the game of life starts to feel like it's fixed against you. You can look back in history and in moments of crisis, communities and cultures kind of get tighter, they get more communal. You've got to look at, you know, say 
uh, Europe after the Second World War, America after the Great Depression, you suddenly get these great communitarian projects like, you know, welfare, healthcare for all. And I think that's what's happened with millennials and especially Gen Zs is that they're becoming more communal. Why did you decide to write about this topic? I was reading all the work that was showing narcissism was on the rise. I was also reading some stuff that I just didn't feel that was, you know, all that judgy stuff, oh, young people, all that, mm. all that stuff, which I thought, I, I just doesn't feel right to me. And and then I, I, I kind of read about this small group of people in, in California in the 80s that really were at the heart of this sort of self-esteem movement. And just as a, just as a sort of journalist, as a kind of a, a storyteller, the idea that this small group of crazy people in California essentially changed the world with their chicanery. I just thought that's such an amazing story. So it was that really. It, it was the story of the self-esteem movement and, and the kind of all the weirdness that went on with there that drew, that drew me to the story. Thank you for saying chicanery. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> this is what I like to interview writers. Okay, I told you, I warned you, Will, that I was going to read bits of your book out loud to you because I've actually been reading it out loud to anyone else who will listen until I got you on the call. So if you will allow it, I'm going to quote yourself back at you and ask you to decode a couple of things. Mm. Does that work? Of course. No, no, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Beginning with um, book one or chapter one, which is called The Tribal Self. And you mentioned this before. We're talking about going back to early humans. We still share 98% of our DNA with chimps. And the quote is, if we are to understand who we are today, we should start by getting a glimpse of who we were back then. Yeah. We, we're such a hubristic animal that we don't think we of ourselves as animals, but we are. We're, we're apes and we're not like gods. And, and we have all this subconscious kind of coding, which kind of controls how we think and how we behave in ways that that we kind of don't have a visceral experience of so we don't understand that we're being controlled and, and as i said the two kind of fundamental subconscious urges we have are, is this that we want to get along with with our tribe or you know chimpanzee troop but, but we also want to get ahead of them so you know we want to kind of earn status they are quite contradictory things because we want to be loved but we also want to sort of you know, get on top and for me that's so revealing of so much of the kind of confusion and weirdness of the human condition this kind of mad combination of hubris and altruism that kind of defines our species it kind of makes mm -hmm. sense when, when you see it as okay so we're we're a tribal animal you know in the same way that a chimpanzee uh, has to deal with chimpanzee politics in order to exist in a chimpanzee troop. Um, we have to deal with human politics in order to kind of survive in a in a human tribe. I actually didn't know very much about this until I read your book, but it reminded me of a scene in the Jane Goodall documentary. Have you seen that? It's so good. There's a brutal bit where some of the chimpanzees are attacked by other chimpanzees and it seems to be senseless and brutal and so violent and horrible. And it's confronting. It's so very well done in the film. But it made me think... Are we essentially brutal? This idea of hierarchies that goes back deep into our DNA and this, you talk about divide and rule and how chimps, there's one on top who has to show great strength, but also seem to be caring of those who are lower down the hierarchy, right? Strategically. But we're all we're yeah. carrying on like that now. I mean, there's something instinctive about that, is there? Well, it's really interesting, actually. Our closest relatives are bonobos and chimpanzees, but we've evolved a long way from bonobos and chimpanzees. And so what sort of the latest scientists are kind of saying, is the article Professor Richard Wrongham, who, who has written this amazing book called The Goodness Paradox. And so what research says is that with people inside our tribes, we are unbelievably peaceful and cooperative. Like we are exponentially kinder, fairer and nicer with people inside our groups. 
But with rival groups, we're much, we're even more aggressive. You know, we, we kill far more other people. So, so there's this paradox with people that we relate to and feel like we're part of our tribe, whether, whether it's the kind of, you know, woke tribe or the Trump tribe with those people, we're amazing, you know, <laughs> but, but it's with, it's with the people that are outside our tribe. We are absolutely horrific. So that's the dichotomy. It's, it's kind of within the group and between the groups. Are humans essentially brutal? I don't think that. I think humans are essentially good. But I guess that's my question to you. It does, sometimes some events make you question whether or not. I think asking whether humans are good or bad is so simplistic that you're never going to get a sensible answer because, mm-hmm. because of course, the truth is it's it's kind of both and neither really. Yeah. I, I think part of the problem of the human condition is that we see everything in as a story, and stories always have this moral. A moral element. There's a goodie and a baddie. And we see the world in terms of goodies and baddies and heroes and villains. And that's where the problem begins. And so, so I think you have to step outside of that. And, and the way to step outside of that is, is to think that, you know, humans want connection and status to get along and get ahead. But th- there are lots of ways of getting um, status in the fashion world, you know, being beautiful is obviously a big one. But but socially, there, there are three ways that, that people can earn status. That, that's with dominance, so violence and aggression and threat and coercion. Uh, that's the oldest one. You know, we've been doing that for, for millions of years since before we were humans. But then there's also virtue. We, we can earn status by being virtuous and, by, you know, being moral and kind. And consistent with what we've just been talking about, the science says that we're mostly altruistic with people that we relate to. Or we can do it with competence by being really good at something. So those are the three ways that we earn status. So wow. the, the truth of the human condition is that everybody uses all three. Sometimes we use threat and coercion. Um, sometimes we earn status by being amazing and tweeting our book reviews or whatever it is, or, you know, or tweeting our, you know, our, how pretty we are. Or it can be with virtue. And I, and I think that's what we see. That, that's the big way that social media is developed and self was published is this sense of people are earning status with what they would perceive as acts of virtue. Let's talk about book two, which is called The Perfectible Self, in which you kind of tell the story about how, from a Western lens, this idea of being the perfect or remarkable individual was fetishized since ancient Greek times. The quote is, sublime status depicted ideal masculine and feminine forms. Celebrities were hailed, beautiful bodies were venerated. So this is back in ancient Greek times. Mm. Talk us through this, because I, again, I, I recognized it when I read about it from seeing statues in museums and seeing you know, all those classic Adonis bodies or whatever. Yeah. But talk about that story and how it shaped us. Yeah, I mean, it is quite amazing. I mean, when I first started thinking, coming reading all this research, my heart sank. I don't want to talk about ancient Greece. It seems so boring. But when you when you actually start having that experience that you've just talked about, where you suddenly see how similar life was then to how it is now, suddenly it became interesting. And so what the psychologists believe happened is that two or 3,000 years ago, around the world, people were either getting along and getting ahead by working in these big communal farming projects, or they were literally in tribes, hunter-gatherer tribes in the main. But ancient Greece is a kind of a weird, well, it's like anyone who's been to Greece knows that you can't really do farming in, in ancient Greece because it's all rocky islands, rocky outcrops, cliffs descending to sea. So, so what that meant was that people had to survive and thrive by 
basically being entrepreneurs by you know making pots, making olive oil, by debating, by hustling. writing poetry, hustling. There were a bunch of hustlers. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly. And and because there were there were lots of fishermen, so there were, and it wasn't like one island, one country. Ancient Greece. What say ancient Greece? It's like Greece. It's the same. You know, it's a hundred, it about a thousand individual communities dotted around. So people were traveling around, having these experiences of different communities. They were, they even started trading with other continents. So it was this amazing and kind of unique part of the world in which. We keep talking about this idea of getting along and getting ahead. The brain turns you into who you have to be in order to get along and get ahead. Part of the way that you impress people as an individual is by being educated, by learning things. And then you start to show off and, you know, getting status from, from that. Whereas in space like East Asia, it's much more about celebrating the group, venerating the group, serving the group. Um, so that's the idea of kind of how it happened. What I think really nails that is, is when you see the acceleration of that from the 1980s onwards like pre-1980s it was the you know it was the age of the union it was very high taxation lots of regulation on banking and business thatcher and reagan got rid of all of that and created a much harsher world for us to live in and very very quickly we became much more individualistic much more self-focused much more narcissistic you know if you think about the 80s culture it's all about greed is good aerobics and all that stuff you know the kind of obsession with the perfect bodies really kicks off um whitney houston singing um the greatest love of all is loving yourself <laughs> okay well but this is a very <laughs> a very anglo view of the world let's talk about confucius what was happening in china okay so unlike ancient greece east asia was very much rolling sort of undulating mountains china Big landlocked country. So basically, if you were in China in the two and a half thousand years ago, you were either part of a farming community or you were digging big irrigation projects, which are kind of huge group efforts, or you were growing rice, which again is a big sort of village, village-wide group effort. So getting along and getting ahead was much more about the group. It was about how can I serve the group? How can I defend the group? How can I be of use to the group? And, and so that's that more collective communitarian mindset which is more associated with places outside the West. It's not just um, China. It's not just East Asia. To a lesser extent, you know, in parts of Africa, you, you get this much more communitarian, kind of collective, communal kind of mindset, which I think is a bit more natural. It's the, the weird people were the ones in the West. Mm. It makes me think about indigenous cultures where you would sit in a circle instead of having the ruler on top talking down. You sit in a circle and everyone takes a turn to speak. It's just a different way of balancing. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly right. All right, I want to talk about the bad self. What did you learn from your stay in a monastery? Oh, the monastery. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the, the big sort of takeaway from that really was just this. I think one of the things that stays with me about that is the fact that it's so kind of very hard to escape that kind of human wiring. And I think one of, one of the reasons that they go into the, the monastery, you think about monks as people who are kind of trying to kind of cleanse themselves and become perfect and rid themselves of the ego. And that's true, but it's also kind of impossible. Firstly, sort of close up, one of these monks I was interviewing was chastising himself because he, the other day he'd cooked these potatoes and he was proud of these potatoes. And somebody, another monk complimented him on his potatoes and he felt proud. Of and he had to kind of go and absolve himself from that because that was a terrible thing. And I thought that was really, you know, that was re really shocking. Not shocking. It was, it, was, it was very telling about the human condition that this guy who'd been a monk for, I don't know, decades, uh, he, he was in late middle age, was still unable to sort of get rid of the urge of feeling pleased with yourself and of course he can't because it's wired in it's that it's that competent success-based status that we all crave we're talking about this from a christian a catholic sensibility right 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But you see this in monasteries. I don't know if the word monasterial is a word, but these kind of monastery cultures in all different kinds of religions, it's about trying to rid yourself of the ego and trying to kind of purify. But, uh, and also just the, the, almost the disingenuous of the whole project, because it, it basically they're kind of depriving themselves and that they're living these very ascetic lives. But actually, it's all about getting to heaven. Like they believe that by doing without in the present day, they get kind of first place into heaven, which is going to be obviously a paradise and everything's going to be amazing. So underneath it all is this kind of steely self-interest, you know, where, where they're actually um, kind of shutting themselves away, trying to get a head start and everyone else to get into heaven. So, so I thought that was quite interesting. So you felt they're still trying to get ahead. Yeah, completely. Yeah. In a different way. And, you know, they, they are. They're all trying to be the best monk. And, you know, and even in monasteries, there are very strict hierarchies. There's the brother at the top who leads the prayers. And so they're all desperately, just in the same way that people who sort of practice Buddhism and mindfulness are, they're all desperately trying to rid themselves of this thing which causes them pain and exhaustion. But actually you can't because it's, it's part of the machine. In, there, there was a really interesting study, which I thought was hilarious, where uh, psychologists in the Netherlands, I think it was, they, they surveyed 3,700 meditation practitioners and they found that they scored extremely high in what they called spiritual superiority so all they were doing was all they were doing was just finding a new way of making themselves feel better than everybody else you mentioned earlier that much of how we characterize the self for ourselves is driven by storytelling and the stories that we decide we're going to go with i guess Mm. talk to me about how that works you're not a scientist but as a journalist, you researched this book and talked to lots of different scientists, lots of different psychologists. What did you discover? Should we talk now about confabulation? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess the big point is that we experience our lives in story form, and and that the reason that books and movies and you know articles and newspapers are structured in the way that they are uh, is because that's how the brain structures life. We're all the hero at the centre of our, the unfolding plot of our lives. And so that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. This is assuming that we're psychologically healthy and everything's working properly. That's what gets us out of bed in the morning, that, that we feel like we've got hopeful futures in store, that we're basically good people, that we're pursuing meaningful projects, these plots. So that, to me, is the, sort of the big insight. And that the idea of confabulation is one of those sort of insights from science which really freaks you out if, you, if you're not familiar with it and I, and I wasn't when I came across it and that's this idea that, that if you think about the brain as a storyteller and the conscious experience as a story it has a narrator and, and that narrator is that voice in your head that you can hear you know and it's always talking talking going on going on going on and even that is a weird thing we never really talk about that the fact that we've got a voice in our head talking to us but you know that that's what we have and that voice is the narrator of our story and what they find is that that, that person in your head that's telling you everything Thing about why you feel what you feel, why you do what you do, why you believe what you believe, is making it up. It has no access to the other parts of the brain which actually make those decisions on your behalf. What happens is the brain makes those decisions on your behalf. So makes you And this is scientifically proven. This is absolutely proven, yeah, yeah. This is a, w- a well-established um, fact in, in both social psychology and neuroscience. That voice in your head that's telling you all this stuff is just making it up. I mean, it might. I'm not saying it's not true. It might be true. It might not be true. It doesn't matter. What's happening is that voice in your head is observing what you're doing, what, how you're feeling, and it's just putting together a make sense story which kind of best fits what's happening what's its function then 
its function is to, as I said, it's the storyteller. It's, it's, it's to justify yourself. It's a heroic story. That, that, so one of the things that we know is that that story is that the brain tells you is, is biased in lots and lots of ways. Mm. Even, even your memories of things that have happened in your past, it remixes them to make you, you seem more heroic very often. I mean, you're, if you work in a creative industry, you'll have had more times than you can count conversations where it's, no, but that was my idea. No, 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 it was definitely my idea. I mean, Jesus, I've had those conversations every time. It's depressing. Everybody thinks it's their idea. And the strongest bias of all um, is thought to be the moral bias, this idea that we're good people. So, so what people tend to believe is, yes, I make mistakes. And yes, I have, there are, I have regrets, but ultimately I am a good person. And so that's part of the story the brain tells everybody. And that's part of the reason why stories can be so, you know, they're very motivating and they get us out of bed in the morning and they push us into, you know, starting podcasts and achieving things. But they also deceive us by telling us that we're amazing. And and, and if other people see the world in ways that don't correspond to ours, then it's not just they have a different perception, it's that they're evil and they're they're villains. And, and of course, that is a, the source of an, an enormous amount of irrationality and unpleasantness that we see in real life and in online life. So interesting. I should say at this point, Will, you've got a great TED talk. We'll share a link in which you talk about story being what the brain does. And you also talk about story as a product of biological evolution. Exactly what you were just saying. Cool. Good. Thank you. (laughs) You know that. I just find it so confronting to know that our brain is wired in order to do these things without us really being conscious of it. It's like we aren't really in control. We're not in control, and it's well, we have very limited control. So, in the sciences, when they talk about the idea of free will, the debate they have isn't whether we have free will or we don't have free will. At least the mainstream debate is whether we have no free will at all, that we're literally just zombies. And that confabulation is just making us feel like we have free will. Or we have a very limited form of free will that they call free won't, which is, you know, if we're about to do something crazy what? like stab somebody, we can, we're able to just stop ourselves at the last minute. If it, wow. you know, So the debate is no control at all or very limited control. And, free you know, won't. Free won't, yeah. So, yeah, it is very confronting. For me, it just makes you humble. The brain is not wired to experience the truth. It's wired to experience to tell us a story and, the, and it's a flattering, deceptive story. To get really, really down to the fundamentals, obviously it, we know because of Charles Darwin that, that every living thing, whether it's a tree or a human, wants to survive and reproduce. That's the fundamental driver of all living things. And for humans, being a tribal animals, to survive, you have to connect, you know, have to get along with other people because you couldn't not be in the tribe because if you were kicked out of the tribe, you'd die. We're actually a lot more connected and a lot more, I think that we flourish as part of the whole a lot more than conventional, colonial, and Darwin fits in with all of this thinking leads us to belief. So this whole idea of we have to have dominion over others, it's all tooth and claw, it's all a big old fight, everyone wants to kill the other one, and it's just about survival that way. I think it's actually more about collaboration. And that's how we survive. Like Gaia theory, I'm up for James Lovelock. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's nice to think about just the connection. That's lovely, but but, <laughs> but, but, but I don't think it's I don't think it's right. I mean, I, I think this idea that nature is all red in tooth and claw. We understand more than that now. The connection is what enables us to survive. So you're right. We all seek connection and we, and we need connection. We have to connect with other people and work together. But in order to maximize our um, potential for survival and reproduction, to maximize our resources, you need status because it's only the people who earn a bit of status that get more resources, that get more safety, to get a be- better choice of mates. And you see that at all levels of human society from hunter-gatherer tribes in the Amazon 
to in Tokyo and Washington and New York. But what if we've got it wrong, Will? What if actually it is much more about balance and about community collaboration than about who's on top and dominion? I don't know. Well, I, I think that we had a big experiment in that trying to create a world in which there was no status and, and it was all about communion. And, and, and an experiment was called communism and it was absolutely disastrous. Everywhere it's been tried, it's led to murder, famine, toxic morality, you know, purges. And more importantly for our argument, what it's also led to is an enormous, just new hierarchies. So what happens mm. when people try to create a world without hierarchy is they create a new hierarchy and put themselves at the top. That's what they do. You, you can't help but do that because that's how the brain is wired. We want to get along, but we also want to get ahead. We want to control other people. So it's so cynical, Will. I, well, it, it might not be what you want to hear, <laughs> but but you know, I, I would really resist trying to do that experiment again because the Soviet Union was was an extremely dark dark place, uh, you know, darker than anywhere that's experimented with capitalism. Yeah, I, I've been researching it for my, my next book. So it's kind of very much at the top of my kind of mind at the moment. And, and it's much more horrific than I thought it was <laughs> when you mm. read about it. As I say, the, the big takeaway for me, apart from all the horror of what happens when you try to get rid of hierarchy is that you can't do it. it hierarchies just immediately reestablish themselves. It's just with the communists at the top. You're probably right. However, can I just put it out there that we have never experimented with an equal egalitarian society run by the women? <laughs> no, I suppose we haven't. No, no, that's true. Just evil dictators calling themselves whatever, but they're always men. Anyway, <laughs> um, we've got off track. I want to talk about two other things before I let you go, Will. And one is this idea of the authentic self. This idea of whether or not the I is actually many is there such a thing as an authentic self? And I think listeners, just have a think. Have you come across this phrase recently? Because it seems to me to be trending. It's a very kind of cool thing to talk about. You need to tap into your authentic self and then you can manifest what you desire, what you deserve. Talk to us about that, Will. What is this idea of the authentic self and is it rubbish? Yeah, I think it's, again, one of these, I say it's a wellness trend, but it's been around since the 60s, 70s, this idea of authenticity, personal authenticity. And what the neuroscience says, you know, we were talking about that before, about how most of your decisions are kind of made for you, perhaps all of them, arguably, but most of them, let's just say, are made for you in your subconscious. And however, it described, there's a book called Incognito by the neuroscientist called David Eagleman, who describes it as a kind of a riotous democracy uh, in your subconscious where you have these different circuits almost arguing for different decisions. And, and the winner of those arguments, that's the decision that you make. Um, so, <laughs> so this idea that we have this kind of steady, authentic self, I think there's kind of limited truth to that. But there is a big caveat, and there is lots of science which talks about personality. Psychologists do say that we have this kind of steady personality type that kind of goes through life. And a lot of it is moderated. And, and a lot of the rest of the stuff that isn't genetic moderated kind of happens in childhood when our brains are still kind of very much in a developmental phase. So by the time you're in your early 20s, you're not who you're going to be forever, but you are a, a long way there. So th there is a kind of sense of truth to authenticity. But this idea that we've got this kind of pure and happy version of ourselves that's kind of hidden away and covered up by society and culture. I don't think that's true. I want to end on something which I found really hopeful and beautiful, which is this idea of eudaimonic happiness. I'd never heard of it, but I was watching, I mentioned your TED talk before that was 
that is aligned to the Science of Storytelling book. And in that talk, you talk about this idea of happiness being tied to active purpose. Yeah, so that's this idea of, you know, life is in the doing. And again, like so many of these ideas, it came out of ancient Greece. It was Aristotle's sort of big idea. And uh, they were arguing about what is happiness. You know, and there's this obviously a well-known idea of hedonic happiness, which is, is all about kind of drugs and chocolate cake and whatever. Hedonism. Hedonism, yeah. Hedonic happiness, exactly. And and he said, no, you know, that's not real happiness for humans. Happiness is in the doing. It's it's in the, you know, we, we have these great goals in life and we pursue them and we, you know, get closer to them. And that's true happiness. And, and that's kind of a bit of a paradoxical thing because often when we are pursuing the great goals of our lives, it's painful. It's difficult. You've got to get up early in the morning. You've got to, you know, you've got to work hard sometimes and make sacrifices. But that was this idea of eudaimonic happiness. And what's what's really amazing is that the science is now sort of looking like that's true. And, and what they're doing is that they, they they get people and give them questionnaires and work out who are the ones who are higher in eudaimonic happiness and who are the ones who are higher in hedonic happiness. And the ones who are higher in eudaimonic happiness have better health outcomes, even with everything else age and so forth um, accounted for. They have um, higher antiviral response and lower levels of inflammation. And inflammation is you know, connected to sort of feeling stressed and is connected to all kinds of you know terrible health outcomes, including cancer. So it really is looking like Aristotle was correct and that, and that, you know, we should approach our lives as a story as if we are kind of heroes pursuing sort of great noble goals because, you know, that's how we get meaning and that's how we thrive and it might even be good for our health. <laughs> We're back to the Greeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you, Will Store. <laughs> Thank you, Claire. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you.